Welcome back to another bite-sized episode of 40 Minute Mentor. There won't be many of you who haven't followed the events of SVB over the last few weeks. Even if you weren't banking with SVB yourself, the chances are high that your investors, suppliers, or clients did. One person who was front and center and sat on the round table of about 20 trade groups, individual investors, and government officials is Dom Hallis, the executive director of UK Tech Lobby Group, the Coalition for Digital Economy, CODEC. I am very honored that Dom has agreed to come on this podcast and recap the events for us and share some behind-the-scenes insights on one of the most stressful weekends the global tech industry has probably ever seen. So welcome, Dom. Thank you so much for joining us on the 40-Minute Mentor. I guess I should probably ask, have you recovered from that fateful weekend yet? Yeah, so just about, I mean, just about, thanks very much for having us. Yeah, it was a long one, but, you know, we're probably about about a month on now and I'm I'm sort of surviving. I went on holiday last weekend, so I'm a bit more recharged, basically recharged at this stage. Very well deserved. Well, I'm, I'm glad you've had a chance to reset and recuperate a little bit. And, and now we're going to bring the trauma all back by going back into those few days. So, so apologies in advance. But to kick us off, I guess for anyone that doesn't know, can you tell us a bit more about the the work you do at Kodak and, and how it came to exist in the first place? Yeah, sure. So so Kodak is a lobby group for tech startups in the UK. So we spend all of our time talking to government about how we can improve the sort of policy environment for tech companies that are growing. And broadly speaking, what does that mean? It means kind of three buckets of policy. So access to talent. So that's, you know, something that, that you guys at, at JBM do a lot of work on, but it's immigration policy, skills policy. You know, how do we create the best environment for people to be hiring? Access to finance, so that's mostly what do venture capital markets look like. In the case of SVB, it was can people access their bank account, but we'll talk about that more, I'm sure. But also things like R&D money, you know, whether that's public funding or tax credits and that sort of stuff. And then the third bucket is, is regulation, technology regulation. So that can be cross-cutting things like data policy or an AI, or actually we're, we're talking today as, as it's likely we'll have something published on competition policy very, very sort of soon from the government. Or it can be in your individual vertical, right? You know, fintech or, or medtech or wherever you are in the sort of weird and wonderful startup world we work in and the various parts of the economy that, that sort of dock in. So that's the sort of broad sway of our work. And then it was all set up in 2010 by two guys, Jeff Lynn, who's our chair still today and was the founder of Cedars, he just exited. And Mike Butcher, who's the editor of TechCrunch in Europe and a sort of a, an OG of the ecosystem. And like they kind of, they always describe it as um, it, it was sort of, Kodak was created to solve what Henry Kissinger back in the day used to call the Europe problem when he was the American Secretary of State, which was when he wanted to sort of call Europe, he didn't know who to call. And there was a challenge of that government in the UK really wanted to speak to the startup community, but they had no way of docking in and they didn't know who the best people to talk to about some of the policy issues were. So you know, as entrepreneurs, they were like, let's get something going and then we'll, we'll sort of see how it goes. And then 13 years on, here we are for, for and sort of the SVB and the other bits are the exact reason why, why it existed. So it's sort of come to fruition. Incredible. And actually, uh, Jeff is a previous 40 Minute Mentor guest. So awesome to have you on as well. Uh, that's really interesting. And, and can I ask actually, just a, a bit about your own background? How did you get involved in like, what did you do before? <laughs> like all or the vast majority of young British people, both men and women, I just really wanted to be a professional footballer when I was a kid. But I used to play at a reasonable level and then wasn't actually that good. So I got into politics because it was competitive, basically. So I got, got, got into politics quite young um, and used to run election campaigns and then went into lobbying. So I became a consultant lobbyist, like as working for a consultancy that sort of advises people on public policy and as clients. And I did a bunch of work in that space 
and became kind of de facto the technology policy person because I was just the youngest person in the office, to be totally honest, and understood how the computers worked. And that was always really interesting to me, and I really enjoyed it. And I got to work on the now dreaded sort of GDPR, like when I went to Brussels and did a lot of work on that when it was being created back in 2014. And then did a bunch of different things, went to work for um, Bloomberg Philanthropies, so Michael Bloomberg's sort of personal giving, he, he dole, where he doles out his billions. So I did two years in India working for them and setting up projects there. And then I did a year as a, a diplomat for the British government working on the Brexit negotiations, which were as exactly as you'd imagine, a disaster, to be totally honest. But uh, it was a really interesting experience. And yeah, and then I sort of took over at Codec in 2018, having known the organization because I'd sort of seen it grow since 2010 when it was first set up by Jeff and, and Mike. And I'd known the executive director when they sort of hired one full time in 2014, someone called Guy Levin, who's a fantastic, fantastic bloke, and had done a really good job building it out. And then he'd been replaced and someone else had come in and they were finally leaving. And it was like, yeah, you know what? I've seen this organization develop. I really love this ecosystem. I think it's a real, really cool sort of place to be and working on. And I was obviously just delighted to take over. And at the time, it was just, just me in a room. And now there are 10 of us and we're, you know, the ecosystem has grown so much in that kind of five years since I took over in January 2018. And uh, yeah, so, so awesome. there you go. Yeah, what a journey. No, thank you for, for sharing. Well, I wanted to come on, to, of course, to talk about SUV and, and you were, you know, really pivotal in getting that deal agreed between the sale of the UK arm of, of SPB and, and HSBC. But uh, I'm conscious that some of our listeners may not have followed the story as closely as probably every founder out there that is listening. So um, a bit of a recap would be amazing. How did it all unfold? And how did ultimately HSBC end up buying SVB? Yeah, sure. So the starting point is like there sort of was an unfolding bank crisis in the United States around SVB's uh, US entity. And the UK bank was ring-fenced and regulated differently from the US entity. It was regulated in the UK. It was sort of had theoretically ring-fenced assets, meaning that there was sort of a Chinese wall between the two organizations. But it became quite quickly clear at the back end of the week, which ultimately resulted in the weekend crisis and the sort of sale, um, that there was a confidence problem in the UK entity as well. And it's really interesting as someone who works in communications for a living, a fascinating example of like why comms matters, basically, because... If I'm totally honest, like SBB UK, the UK entity, didn't do a very good job of explaining to founders that it was a ring-fenced entity, that the assets were protected, that it was a distinct thing that you know, wasn't going to be directly impacted by whatever was happening in the States. And so quite quickly, you had this situation where you know, founders were panicking, investors were saying, oh, you should withdraw you know, you back your money, or, or they were saying, look, we're not going to recommend what you do, but the reality is that people were like withdrawing anyway. And what you had was an old-fashioned bank run, right? As in, you know, we've all seen it's a wonderful life and like that's not a million miles from what happened except it was online. Like people panicked and they took their money out. And so, yeah, at that stage, and that we're now moving towards the, the Friday, right? What you had is a bunch of people withdrawing their money. And finally, SVB UK on that Friday afternoon did a call with founders where they said, well, you actually don't have to worry because we're ring-fenced. But by that point, you know, the, the sort of the ship had sailed, frankly, like um, the reality was the question was no longer whether or not the bank was ring fenced. The question was how much money had been withdrawn and whether or not it was still solvent. And so it, it rapidly became clear that, uh, you know, on that Friday afternoon, there was a significant problem. And that's the point at which we kind of reached out to the government on that Friday afternoon evening and said, look, we're, we're going to have to have some help here. This is going to be a significant issue. I did a lot of work with them at that stage and, and over the weekend, which we can talk about to, to sort of resolve the crisis as best possible. 
Wow. Yeah, I mean, it's quite remarkable, isn't it, how quickly things went south. But thank goodness you were there to help, uh, you know, avert a total disaster. For you personally, then, what was your role in those negotiations? And uh, tell us a bit more about your particular experience. Yes. So I think the best way of thinking about it is when you work with government like this, there are things that government do really, really well. And sort of resolving a situation with a failing bank is, is one of them. Right. As in the reality is, you know, I'm a public policy expert that works on technology. I have no clue how to bail out a bank. Right. As in that's not my forte. Right. As in I'm useless at that. Right. So what you need is you need to get the professionals in the room who know how to resolve that situation. And for the most part, rightfully so, those professionals work for the government. So, you know, the, the Bank of England and the Prudential Regulation Authority will have a bank failure plan in a drawer and they need to get it out and be like, here's how we're going to solve this crisis, right? And they'll be running it like a playbook. And so a lot of what, what we needed to do was make sure that they did that process, you know, where so originally they might not have been willing to do that, right? As in, so on that Friday night, I spent a lot of time on the phone to um, people in, in 10 Downing Street and at the Treasury to just explain that the crisis was happening, that this is the sort of scale of the problem. I remember I'd sort of screenshotted a bunch of WhatsApp messages that I had from VCs and founders and just was forwarding them on to these advisors in, in government saying, look, like, this is what's happening right now. This is the situation. And to be fair to them, quite quickly, they understood the scale of the problem. And so it was a question of, okay, well, you know, we know we need to do something, but what exactly do we need to do and, and how big an intervention does it look like? And we you know what are the framing of it. And so then at that stage, you're just trying to get them evidence of you know, not just that there is a problem, but precisely how big is the scale of the problem and what does it look like and what what are the risks and what are the things they might not think about that might not be in the original plan that they've drawn up for any bank failure that's different about this one. And so that's what we spent most of kind of Saturday doing is, you know, how do you communicate those quirks and, and you know, the, the data and anything that we can get from the community, whether it's investors or founders or, or anyone else, to the government so that they're able to shape their plans accordingly and, and make sure that they work. And then the other thing we were doing is trying to insist uh, as best possible that they get out some communications that made clear that they were planning to act and they were planning to do something because the Friday evening, the Bank of England had put out a statement basically saying the bank's going to go bust and didn't really say much else and was sort of created, if I'm totally honest, like sheer panic. And so a lot of my time was spent on the phone to ministers and others being like, please, can you put out a statement? Like, because we know that you're working on this. Like, we know you've had teams working on it overnight on Friday night and you'll have them working overnight on Saturday night and probably overnight on Sunday night. But if you don't communicate that, then everyone else is frankly shitting themselves. And so you have this like bizarre situation where, you know, founders are panicking. But actually, you know, for us, it was, well, we know the government's doing something. We know they're acting. You know, we'll get there. There's a process ongoing. And so it was those two things. It was getting them all the data they could get and then making sure that we would get some communications from them that made that clear. And so by the Sunday morning, Jeremy Hunt went on Laura Kunisberg's show, the main political show on, on Sunday mornings on the BBC, and made clear that the government was planning to act. You know, at the same time, crucially, we had some conversations with Rachel Reeves, the Shadow Chancellor's team, who again was sort of saying similar things and making sure that, that they were full scale behind us. So it wasn't a kind of political thing. And so we had a lot of those conversations and made sure that it was clear that the government was planning to act, which provided some reassurance. And then on the Sunday, it was, you know, that in many ways that work was done and it was the government was running basically an auction for this bank. You know, they decided that a sale was the way to go and were in a, a dark room somewhere with outside of the, the realms of 
you know, people like me who try and influence these processes to resolve the problem. And so it's a question of like, who's going to buy this thing, right? And that's exactly what it should be like that in these situations, the Bank of England and the Prudential Regulator Authority and the Treasury, they run these processes. That's what they're expert at. And they did it very effectively. And, and all we really got then was little snippets of information like, oh, well, these people are interested or that, you know, those people are interested sometimes from the press and sometimes from elsewhere. And sometimes from the odd person in the room that we might know or advisors and things. But we knew that it was generally trending in a positive direction. And then by the Sunday evening, we were in a pretty good sense that a sale was going to go through and that it was all going to be okay. But but obviously it ran think, right down to the wire in the end. The government announced it at sort of 7 a.m. on the Monday before the markets opened at 8. And uh, that was a stressful evening. I, I woke up at 5 a.m. that day and I had a text being like, the sale's gone through it'll be this bank that, you know, HSBC is going to abort it. So, you know, they'll announce it this morning and you're like, okay, good, we're, we're sorted. But, um, but yeah, so it's sort of a, a weird process. But, and, and like I said, in, in many ways, you do a lot of work influencing policy, but in truth, for the most part, that, you know, the bulk of the actual work is done by the experts, the Treasury, the Bank of England, the civil servants who never get their names in the news, who are the pros, you know what I mean? And all we can do is give them the information that they need and, and communicate to the community and talk to ministers about what we think that, you know, what's sort of happening in the ecosystem, as opposed to telling people how to bail out a bank, which uh, certainly is not my my forte. So. Fair enough. Well, they really deserve huge praise for the speed in which they acted. And it is a remarkable story. I think it also, something you said that, which just really, I hope will chime with any founder listening, going through any moments of crisis, just the importance of clear communication and clarity of message you know it's so easy isn't it when you're going through difficult times to kind of get head down and just trying to solve problems but actually if the people around you don't know that you're trying to solve the problem then it's it just panic ensues and i think your background in comms clearly helped to kind of push that agenda because it could have been uh, even messier i guess if they hadn't put those statements out really you know what we tried to do at codec over that weekend was exactly that was like how do we communicate roughly what's happening, that we know that these discussions are ongoing, that we that things are moving forward in a way that, you know, I think we probably put out six or seven updates over that weekend at various times from like 9am on the Saturday to 11pm on Sunday night. And the reason why we did that was we wanted to sort of be a version of, for want of a better description, that single source of truth that is like, we're telling you what's happening. And we're not basing that on something that's been reported, maybe, or like is a single source here or a single source there. Because one of the challenges especially in those moments of crisis, is there's lots of things happening, right? And, you know, you, there'll be like journalists writing stories that like this buyer's interested or that might happen or some other craziness is going on. And the truth is like, if you're a founder of a business, like our community is, in those moments, it's like, well, where do we turn? Like, what's the actual information? Like, is it, is it useful? They're not going to want to read 25 different places, but crucially, those 25 things might also be conflicting, right? And so it's like, how do we communicate as clearly and simply, this is roughly what's happening, and how do we encourage the government to do the same within the bounds of obviously what they are capable or able to do at that moment? So, yeah, I, I think that was pretty well done in the end. And that's sort of a core part of what made it easier to go through the weekend is the ability to make clear to people that A, we were making progress, B, you know, this is roughly where we are, and then C, we're hopeful of getting to a sort of resolution or work. Right. No, no, well, I'd imagine it was you woke up at 5 a.m. probably. I guess it could have gone either way. And thankfully, there was a positive outcome in the end. But it must have been incredibly stressful. And I'd love to know just for any, I'm sure lots of our listeners are interested that how did you manage to keep so calm 
under all that pressure, that scrutiny, given the tight timeframes as well? And, and do you have any advice or tips for anyone that, that's listening to this that might be in their own high pressure situation about how to stay calm and, you know, keep a level head to kind of get through those sorts of difficult times? Yeah, I mean, so first of all, I think you kind of just have to acknowledge that it is stressful. <laughs> the reality is like, you know, I remember I, there's some of the stories, I, and actually I think this one came out in the Times uh, the week after, of one founder who just exited and they had £48 million in the bank at SVB and, you know, what was going to happen. And, and you're getting those phone calls, right? That's the reality is you're getting those phone calls in that situation being like, my business is at stake, what, what can I do? And so you do feel that, that that's stressful, of course, like, I think that, and, and it's, it's silly to not acknowledge that, that's, that's the reality. I think that what I tend to do, at least, is like, in these situations, there are certain things that you can control and there are certain things you can't, right? As in, so, you know, in that, over that weekend, I know there's going to be 100 million things written about what's happening, not many of which I can control. There's going to be the government is going to be working away in a, in a dark room, like, and I'll only be able to control certain elements of that. And so it's like, so what can I control? What levers can I pull that are impactful? And how do we do that? That's, that's all I focus on. And the rest is ephemeral. Like, so, you know, I remember the really good example of that over that weekend is I turned down hundreds of media requests that weekend, like hundreds, because the truth was like, by the point at which the government was moving and working on the policy, the ability to talk about why they needed to do something was, was no longer relevant. Like, and it was like, it's useful to, to frame the narrative. But in truth, like, they were doing the work. It was a question of what the outcome would be. And so, you know, in, in my profession, which is like, how do you shape government policy? Like, it no longer became, frankly, a necessity, but, but remotely useful for us to be talking about, oh, they really should be doing something because they were already doing something and we were trying to help them do that thing as opposed to pressure them into doing that thing. And so, you know, how do you avoid the, the bits that don't matter and make sure that you're focusing on the most impactful things? That's what I try to do, at least. I don't, I'm not sure whether that would work for everyone, but, you know, obviously all jobs and all founders are different, but that would be my particular take. Uh, thanks for the great advice. I'm sure our listeners will appreciate that. I I'm a big believer in, in learning from mistakes and challenging experiences. I think it often does make you stronger. And uh, I guess we, we share a lot of those sorts of stories and learnings on this podcast. So what are the main lessons that you've taken away from the SVB? I don't want to call it fiasco, but situation. And what more generally can we learn from that? Yes. So don't put all your money in one bank. That's always a good place to start. <laughs> I've subsequently set up another bank, you know, very quickly, like every other founder out there. <laughs> Look, like, I think it really tells you something about how interconnected the ecosystem is. It's something that we think about a lot. And, you know, the Bank of England statement that went out on the Friday evening to say that the bank was going insolvent, the point of that statement was to say that it didn't pose a risk to the UK economy as a whole if the bank went bust. But it certainly posed a risk to like the innovation economy. It was systemic to the innovation economy in the UK, the SVB UK. I think if we were totally honest, people probably didn't realise that, let to the extent that they did. And so just being aware of the web of, of connections that you have, you know, so you, there are lots of companies that wouldn't have even banked with SVB that were like, oh God, actually it turns out that two of my investors and also three of my clients or like someone that I got a loan from or a fintech that we use like does bank with them and it has a significant impact on your business. And so I think just being much more aware of those, for want of a better description, counterparty risks in addition to your own risks probably is a good lesson to take. But yeah, I mean, it, it's sometimes the, 
the sort of outside cases, which I think this is clearly one, make make the worst case studies in, in many ways for normal business practices. But but I definitely would take away the yeah, setting up multiple bank accounts is a starting point. Yeah, definitely. Cheers stuff. I'm sure anyone that knows this story will have done that already. But if you haven't, please do just to save any future heartache or, or, or stress. And in terms of, I think one of the biggest takeaways for me, and I'm sure anyone that just saw the speed at which things happened, was that there was just amazing collaboration between key figures in technology, VC, government. They, uh, obviously, Kodak was such an important part of this. And, and you ultimately achieved something really remarkable in a matter of days. So I guess two questions. One is that, are there any people behind the scenes that deserve a shout out that maybe haven't been given the credit who, who were sort of driving forces behind what occurred? And then secondly, how can we ensure that this collaboration happens more often, more frequently? Because I guess if there's a criticism of government and tech and, and, and various groups is that we don't collaborate enough. And yet, this is the prime example of where uh, you can achieve amazing things when you do. So yeah, we'd love your your take on those two things. Yeah, so so, so on the kind of the people and how it came together, I think like, you know, so on the Saturday morning, one of the founders had set up a, a WhatsApp group that sort of became the base for a lot of the communications. And, and I, I think that like that was incredibly useful because it got all the primary people in one place and you could communicate to them and, and understand what was going on. I think that the challenge is, sometimes and this is you know lessons to learn and whether or not this will create collaboration or not i don't know is that you know by its nature the ecosystem is full of people who are sort of entrepreneurs and almost by their nature are kind of unemployable or don't follow the rules (laughs) and so the ability to kind of get them to play nicely is pretty hard usually if we're totally honest like um whether they're investors who compete on deals or whether they're founders who sort of you know engage in whether it's kind of you know, friendly competition is certainly competition in many cases. And so it's not, you know, I, I think it's always going to be like, there's always going to be an inherent sort of healthy tension there sometimes. But, but in these moments of crisis, right, there's, there's a natural coming together of the community. And I think that it, it was really reflected. And in stark contrast, actually, to what happened in the, in the US, where I think, if I'm honest, it was a bit more like rats in the sack. Whereas here, I think people were, were able to collaborate much more effectively. Part of the reason for that, and, and just to shout some people out, was like, the kind of ability of some of the big VCs in particular to kind of corral everyone into one place and frankly, to understand what they could helpfully do and, and what they couldn't, right? So like certainly Matt Clifford from Entrepreneur First did a fantastic job. Like Brent Hoberman did an awful, awesome job with the, the government. Sol Klein, Charlotte Crosswell, who runs the um, CFIT, the, the new government fintech body was super helpful. And also like a sort of unsung part of, I think the story was uh, a letter that a bunch of the investors put together over the weekend saying that they would continue to bank with SVB if it was recapitalized. And that got a bit of, um, if I'm honest, that got a bit of shit from people on Twitter and the press and stuff being like, oh, well, why are they doing this? But actually the point was that that was really important for the ability to sell the bank because the question, you know, it was fine to be like, we want to sell the bank, but understandably anyone who wanted to buy it would be like, well, is it going to have any customers? Like what's going to happen? And so for them to be able to do that and say, look, we're going to be there for the bank once the bank's back. And Fred Destan from, from Stride did a bunch of the work on that and, and, and deserves huge credit as well. But yeah, I mean, you know, what can we take forward from it? I guess like collaboration is always easier in sort of wartime, for want of a better description, like as in, you know, people work more nicely together at these moments of crisis and, and also just are spending a lot more time thinking about it and thinking about policy or thinking about how best to get engaged with government and government's thinking about the ecosystem in that exact moment. And so it's not a... 
like I said, it's not a perfect example precisely because like it's a condensed period of 48 hours of intense activity. But I, I guess I was reassured by the fact that you can do that in that time and it, and it works really well. But I suppose it's my job to say like, well, hopefully people can collaborate the rest of the time as well and work with us and others to change government policy for the better in other ways. And, you know, we've got a reasonable record of that as well. So I, I'm kind of optimistic that that collaboration does work when necessary. Like it's never perfect and, you know, it's always going to be be tricky and there's a kind of a translation problem sometimes between government and the ecosystem and they've got their own ways of thinking about the world. But generally speaking, like it was, you know, at the moments that matter, just like this one, things get things get done. So brilliant. Well, that's a probably a, a good place to end it with a on a positive note, uh hopeful for the future collaboration and uh yeah i i guess on behalf of uh, everyone in the tech ecosystem a massive thanks again for for all you did under such challenging circumstances and i really appreciate you coming on to share a bit more about the story because i think it's something that everyone's been interested in even though i didn't bank with svb myself i found it an incredibly stressful weekend watching on from the sidelines because i knew so many of my clients and partners and vc funds were, were impacted and so it's great to just to learn a bit more from somebody right at the heart of that story. And thank you for sharing your your thoughts and advice as well. We really appreciate it, Dom. So thank you. That's very kind. Thank you very much for having us. Cheers. Thank you so much for tuning in today. I really hope you enjoyed getting more of an insight into what really happened at SVB and some of the learnings we can all take forward. It was a real pleasure talking to Dom. And I definitely encourage all founders to check out the really important work that Codec are doing. That's all from us today. Don't forget to hit subscribe and leave us a review and we'll see you again soon.